Very good. So I think we'll, we'll just roll into the questions. And you did answer a lot of those questions. So I was, um, I'm going to try to ask a few others, and then we'll see what, what questions uh, remain. So one of the questions is, uh, and it, this will be, you can answer it however you want to, as far as the amount of detail, but when did the church age begin and when will it end? So just by way of review. Yeah, so I think the church age began in Acts chapter 2. So officially, that's the establishment of the church. And even though Jesus prophesies it back in Matthew 16, right? I will build my church. The gates of Hades will never overcome it. But officially, when the Pentecost takes place and the Spirit corporately begins to be with the people of God, I would say that is the beginning of the church. And uh, in the Old Testament, there is no reference to the church. Now, you could say there's elements of similar experiences, right? There's unity that Israel should have had, you know, brothers dwelling in unity, right, from the Psalms. Those are just descriptions of good, peaceful fellowship, but that is not necessarily the same thing as the church being previewed in the Old Testament. We kind of know this from Romans chapter 16 in verse 25 when uh, Paul ends his book to the city of Rome. And he's never been there, by the way, just so you remember that. He says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, which has been made to all the nations leading to obedience of the faith. So now this mystery is descriptive of the church being unified, all the nations leading to obedience of the faith, the gospel, right? According to my gospel. And so while the, the fact that the Gentiles would be saved one day, we know that from many passages in the Old Testament, and they would worship God, especially in the Millennial Kingdom, the idea of the church formation is a mystery that has been kept from secret from long ages past. Okay, so that's the, that's the New Testament passage indicating that this is the first time it's been revealed in the New Testament. Now, when will it end? I would say the ending of the church age is the rapture. Okay. And so the rapture kind of culminates that phase, whenever that is, and that begins the tribulation and so on. Okay. Now, you did touch on this, but I'd just like to clarify. So the church is, is raptured out where we meet uh, Christ in the air, and then the tribulation begins, and, and God continues to save people. But without the church, how are people saved during the tribulation, without the church here to proclaim them? Yeah, so I would say that as we begin to look at Revelation and the survey from chapter 6, which is the beginning of the tribulation, the judgments, right, the, the seals, the beginning point, and then you get to Revelation 19, which is the Armageddon, kind of the ending point of the tribulation, because chapter 20 begins the millennial kingdom. So 6 to 19 is our tribulation period. Okay. Multiple times we see examples of people getting saved, worshiping, not taking on the mark of the beast. Otherwise, those passages become meaningless. Because when he says, those who don't have the mark of the beast, well, why would they not take on the mark of the beast? Because without it, they can't buy, they can't sell, they can't survive, they're judged, they're killed. In other words, you have to have a good reason not to take the mark of the beast. And it's not because you're a Republican. 
It's got to be greater than that. In other words, they're worshiping the true God. They're not worshiping the false beast. It actually says that right there. It says, and those who don't worship the beast are not taking the mark of the beast. In other words, they're truly believers. So we have evidence of people becoming saved in the tribulation. And now the evidence would be, well, first of all, the two witnesses, the 144,000. Then you have the angel flying multiple times, proclaiming repentance, proclaiming the judgment of God. And I, I did mention this briefly, but I really believe, I mean, the media in the last, let's just think about 20 years, right? Amazon is what, 1997? Is that when it was formed, I think? And the internet isn't that old. I mean, it was formed in our lifetime. So in other words, you have so much advancement with media that it can, it's only going to get more advanced, I would say. And so the access to the sermons and the, the biblical data is still available. It doesn't say that all that all of a sudden is raptured with us, right? The Bibles aren't coming up with us as we go to heaven. You know, they're still on earth. So I, I think there's lots of evidence to believe that people have access to the truth. And just one quick side comment, because this is something to think through, and it's, you know, kind of debated, uh, is Second Thessalonians, right? The one who restrains is removed. So if that is the Holy Spirit, then you would have to conclude that the Holy Spirit is no longer active in the tribulational period to cause regeneration, Right? Because it is the spirit who gives in life, progress. John 6 says that the flesh profits nothing. So now we understand that the spirit is the one who regenerates people. So in order for people to be regenerated in the, in the tribulation, the spirit has to be active. So my conclusion is that it's not the Holy Spirit then. It has to be the church. And God is currently using the church to restrain some of the evil that... The, this world would impose on society. And I think a preview of that was the COVID period, right? When churches were shut down all over the world and all over our country, lawlessness was out of control. The BLM riots was just one example of it. But suicide and, and family trouble and, of course, crime, it just flourished. And it's not simply because Democrats are willing to do what we believe is right or our own district attorney Gascon in Los Angeles is destroying our city. Yes, it's frustrating. But I do believe that the restraints put on the, by the government is a preview of what happens when the church is truly gone and people do whatever they want to do. And unless it's, it's the, you know, we have three, three elements that restrain, right? The conscience, the church, and the law of God. Well, the law of God is available. The conscience, if it's been seared, it's not very helpful to you to restrain your lawlessness. And so now you have to go to the outside source, the Bible, because the church is away. So that's my conviction. I know it's debated. I'm, I'm sure, I don't know what Mark's view is. I'm sure different people in your church have different views. But that's just something to think about carefully. And um, again, I think the spirit is still around because he is required for regeneration. And we know regeneration takes place in the tribulation. Okay, thank you. One of the questions involved um, something that may, may be just in the white pages of Scripture, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Concerning those who are saved during the tribulation, will they form themselves into assemblies or to a, into like a, a church? I mean, there, there's limited time. There's only seven years. So there's not a lot of time for that. But what, what are your thoughts yeah. concerning that? 
Well, that is definitely the white spaces because there's nothing about that in the Bible at all. However, I think we can make a reasonable guess that Christians have always gathered together. And in the most difficult and persecuted times, Christians always found a reason that they use the catacombs in Rome to do that or people so my background is Russian. I grew up in the Soviet Union. I was 10 when my family immigrated. We immigrated because my parents were arrested by the KGB. The KGB came to our house often. I remember some of this as a child. They searched our house. They arrested my parents, like I said, and on and on and on. So my parents grew up meeting in forests. And they didn't know the location of the meeting until late Saturday night so that nobody would be able to betray them. Because they were actually some – they experienced betrayal such that they were – uh, arrested in mass when they were younger, when they were college aged, and so even in the Soviet Union, people met in forests if they had to just to stay together and fellowship because of Hebrews ten. Even in the middle of persecution, right? It says, "Do not forsake the gathering with one another." So I do think it's reasonable for us to conclude that in the tribulation, Christians will find each other, and they will find ways to worship together. And again. I think the Bible is around. They'll read the Bible, they'll know, you know what, we should spend time with each other to worship and uh, find ways to fight, not fight literally, but, you know, oppose the great beast and the satanic worship system. Okay. Thank you. So thinking about the, uh, at the second coming of, of Christ, will, where will the church be? The second coming of Christ, where will the church be? So, yeah, so the church is coming down with Christ from heaven. So if you agree with the pre-tribulational view, that means the church has been raptured before the tribulation begins. As we are raptured, we immediately transform in for seven years, human time period. We are in heaven celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of the tribulation, that ends the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says in Revelation 19, we come down with him. The saints are coming down with him. And we're part of the final battle at the end of the tribulation, the Armageddon. We're participating in that battle as glorified saints. And then we enter the millennial kingdom with Christ after the judgments take place. So the church, as we think about it as a universal church entity, all the true believers of all the ages from Acts 2 to the tribulation, we would be coming back with Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you for reviewing that. What, as far as when we think about the, the coming of Christ and the Lord using Israel and, and, and the bringing Israel back together as a nation, what we believe the scriptures teach, can you talk a little bit about how the Lord will work to, to draw Israel to himself and also the, the phrase, all Israel will be saved. Can you elaborate a little bit about what Paul might mean by that? Yeah, so in Zechariah chapter 12, you'll be able to see that toward the end of the presentation when the dust talk about the salvation of Israel. So in Zechariah 12, 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns 
for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter, bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadar Miron in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives, the family of Shemites by themselves, and the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. That just signifies significant personal mourning. The day finally realized that we have crucified our Messiah. Now, not them, but their predecessors, obviously. And so the best reconstruction of this is that because the millennial kingdom is intended to fulfill the promises to, the, to Abraham and to fulfill all the elements of the Abrahamic covenant, the Jewish people have to repent before the millennial kingdom in order for them to enter it and to be participants in it. And so Zechariah 12.10 signifies that post-Armageddon conversion. So the Armageddon is mentioned here. That's verse 11. I read that intentionally in the plain of Megiddo. So now this is post-Armageddon because of verse 11. And now the people of God realize this is our Messiah. Three and a half years ago, we were seeing Antichrist as our Messiah. And he's the one who committed the abomination of desolation. Therefore, the false Christ. But this is our Messiah who just came down from heaven, destroyed the Antichrist and all the armies of the world. And now we worship him. So Zechariah 12.10 is their realization and their confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And now they go into deep mourning alone by families to signify its depth, its privacy, and its personal, right? It's not just generally speaking, Israel is crying. Some are, some are not. No, every single person alive is weeping and reflecting on their rejection of the Messiah. What are they saying? Isaiah 53. And so if you remember Isaiah 53, that is probably the best connection between Zechariah 12.10 and Isaiah 53 is that they are confessing that we messed it up. And he was, he was crushed for our iniquities. He bore our sins on himself. And so that would be the, the repentance of Israel. So when Romans, so you refer to Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, then all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That is connected to Zechariah 12, the end of the, uh, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, the end of Armageddon, and back to Isaiah 53. But you have to remember in Romans 9, 6, it says not all Israel is a descendant of Israel. And so there's a separation that Paul makes. Yes, there is the ethnic Israel, but not everybody who is ethnically Jewish is truly part of the people of God, spiritual Israel. That is, a believer or Abraham's descendant, as Galatians 3 refers to it. So the way we would reconcile all this is to say, today, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. That's Romans 11.25, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, until the church age is over, which is the beginning of the tribulation. Then the next verse, and all Israel will be saved. So that's the chronology we need to be mindful of, right? There's a temporary hardening on the Jewish people. So they do not see Jesus as the beautiful Savior, as God's glory, right? In the face of Christ, we see the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4. And so they are blinded to it until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. 
the end of the church age. And now Israel is becoming saved at the end of the tribulation. The reason I would say it's at the end of the tribulation, because it's clear that the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they're following the Antichrist as their Messiah. Because he created peace in the Middle East. He allowed them to build the temple. He's allowing them to offer sacrifices. Everything is restored according to the Jewish system. They're happy. The Orthodox Jews are happy because everything that they know to be true and right in the Old Testament, they're doing until the abomination of desolation. And then everything changes and they realize he's the false Messiah. And they think because of all the persecution against the Jewish people that we talked about in the last three and a half years, it pushes them towards genuine repentance. And so I would say that all Israel will be saved means all the Israelites alive at the end of the tribulational period will be saved. Every single Jewish person. Now, that is not to say that all the Jews of all time will be all of a sudden resurrected for that moment of conversion. That's not what that means. Okay. So, yes, there will be people who've been Jewish in human history who are not going to be in the millennial kingdom and are not going to be in the eternal state. Hence, not all Israel is Israel. Okay. Hopefully, I answered that question. I tried to be as comprehensive as possible. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of... Uh... A lot of details with that, but I, that was a good summary. Thank you. Now, in the Millennial Kingdom, you've got the church, you've got um, you've got the uh, Israel involved, but you also have some unbelievers. You have the Holy Christ, uh, Jesus reigning from Jerusalem. Any any uh, ideas? And again, uh, this comes from more of the white white pages, I think, than anywhere else. Any ideas on how? A holy Christ can reside on an, on an earth with still sinful people. Yeah, and I would I would look back to the Jesus' first time on this earth, right? A holy Christ also resided with people on this earth for three years in the ministry, and obviously over thirty years in total. So I don't think it's an issue of can a holy Christ in a human body, incarnate Son of God, can he reside in the presence of sinners? We know he can. But we also know that there's a difference in the millennial kingdom. The curse is lifted, for example. And there is more righteousness, right? He will rule with the rod of righteousness, which means that there is rebellion and he has to squash it. And that comes from the people who enter the millennial kingdom, who have children who don't believe in the Messiah because only saved people enter the millennial kingdom and their kids are the ones who rebel ultimately. So I think the references to his rule of righteousness signifies sin and rebellion against him. And it also signifies that he's able to rule from the temple. That is his throne room. We know that from so many passages in the Old Testament, Zion is the city, Jerusalem is the holy city. Uh, but the coexistence between a holy Christ and holy glorified saints, both Gentiles and Jews, is an indication that, yes, you can coexist, um, it's eternal state. It's the eternal state that is free from all elements of sin. Okay, and that's a clear distinction in Scripture. Yeah, that's clear. Now, during the during the millennium, there will be some uh, saints, saints from the tribulation that uh, don't have glorified bodies, and that will will die during the millennium. So, when when do they get resurrected bodies? Uh, so they would get the resurrected bodies at the very end of the cleanup effort at the end of the millennial kingdom after 
the final rebellion, Revelation 20, where it talks about Satan being released from his bonds one more time, and then he's judged. And so the, that final uh, resurrection takes place at the end. Okay. All yeah, right. because they are the ones then who enter eternal, the eternal state. Now, in, in, thinking about the eternal state, could you elaborate some on, on the various, what I would describe as, and you correct me if I'm wrong, various people groups of God. You've got, you've got pre saints of that were I call pre-Israel saints. Um, you've got Israel, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulational saints. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that? Because sometimes we 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 get too focused on like the church in a larger sense, and even the church definite by definition gets applied to Old Testament saints by our covenantal friends. Yeah, yeah. So there, I think there's two things we have to keep in mind. First, in First Peter chapter two, Peter does talk about us. Verse nine: You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who called you into out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there is an element of the Gentiles not being formerly part of the people of God, but now are being grafted in to the discussion of spiritual Israel, right? We get that in Revelation, in Romans 9 through 11, the grafting in imagery. So we are now part of the people of God. That is not to say that it eliminates all ethnic distinctions, okay? So we have to, that's why I think these, these two elements coexist side by side. Yes, we weren't the beneficiaries of all the blessings. Look at Ephesians 2. We were separated from Christ, right? No benefits from Israel, and on and on and on. So there's a lot of passages that signify now we are. So we can't forget that. However, you think about, I'll just point out two passages in Revelation. So in Revelation, when we see a preview of eternity and worship, it says in Revelation 5.9, for example, right? This is eternal worship. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests of our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So why mention tribe, tongue, and people and nation? Unless there is some diversity that still exists in eternity reflecting the graciousness of God, the grace of God that isn't limited to Israel. It's not limited to one people group. It's everybody. Then you fast forward to the very end of Revelation. So that's the beginning, right? Kind of like, this is where we're going, but we've got to get through the tribulation first. Revelation 5 and then tribulation, Revelation 6. Now go to chapter 21, and it talks about verse 24, 21, 24. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. That's the new Jerusalem. That's the eternal state. And for him to mention the nations and the kings signifies that there's still some ethnic distinction that is recognizable in eternity that allows God to receive more glory because of the breadth of his salvation. Now, that's, I guess you could say ethnically speaking, but there's still one people of God group, right? Because of 1 Peter 2. So we're all joined together. We're all worshiping the same Savior. We're all worshiping the same Lamb. 
uh, the same God, rather, the same Trinity, but there's still enough distinction between Jews and Russians and everybody else um, because it just celebrates God's universal salvation, which was promised from the very beginning. If you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 12, right, the Abrahamic covenant wasn't limited to the Jewish people. Verse 3 says, and all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. So from the very beginning, God had the plan to save all nations and all, all people groups. And that'll be the case. The question now, God used Israel, and they failed in the Old Testament. They were supposed to be the light, Isaiah 42 and 49. Then Jesus becomes the light as he comes in and says, I am the light of the world. And then he leaves and says, now you are the light of the world. And so the responsibility goes from Israel to Jesus to us, but ultimately to reach all the worlds, right? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jerusalem, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. So the, the plan of the gospel was always um, global, and it's reflected as such in the eternal state in Revelation 22. Yeah, thanks for talking about that, elaborating a little bit about that. Uh, one one of the things I'd like to you to uh, kind of shepherd us through is is you can get to a place where with all these details you can reach a place of um, I don't know call it indecision you know you can listen to a John MacArthur sermon and say well I really agree with all that and then you you listen to an R.C. Sproul explanation of the future and you say oh I really agree with all that and they're just kind of left in this no man land between and they they would just might say like well if, if People, godly, smart men like R.C. Sproul and, and John MacArthur don't agree. How can I ever figure this out? I haven't gone to seminary. I haven't studied, you know, the languages and all this. So can can you shepherd people that are thinking that way? And, that, and how can they understand for themselves what the Bible teaches? Well, MacArthur's still alive, so follow him. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it ultimately comes back. To a question of hermeneutics okay and i don't want to get too distracted from our conversation but i would say that if our hermeneutical principles are not in agreement we're never going to agree on the results of our study and that really is where the differences are so just in brief the dispensational point of view and the covenantal point okay so the main differences lie in defining the church and ultimately defining Israel and defining your understanding of how to interpret certain passages as spiritually or literally. Okay, so that's where everything kind of boils down. Now, there's nuances in all this, but I would say those are the main principles where there's a disagreement. And so because of what I said earlier, that there is no church in the Old Testament. However, some of the covenantal believers would say, well, Israel of God, as a terminology, signifies some kind of connection to the church. And so there's three passages in the New Testament that are disputed in regards to Israel of God. There's 72 in total that use Israel, and in 69 of them, nobody is dis disagreeing that Israel means ethnic Israel. Nobody disagrees about that because it's so obvious. Whether it's in the Gospels or in, in the Epistles, it's super obvious that it's Israel, ethnic Israel. However, in three passages, people say, well, perhaps 
Israel here means the church, the spiritual Israel. One of them is Romans 9, 6. Not all Israel is Israel. The other one is Romans 11, 26. All Israel will be saved. And then the third one, and this is the main one. In fact, those other two are semi-disputed, but not really. This one is really disputed. And this is Galatians 6, verse 16. And it says this, those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. Them is very clear that it's the Gentiles. Because the whole book of Galatians is all about being forced to be circumcised in order to be part of the people of God, right? And even two verses up in verse 13, it says, they desire to have you circumcised. So you is Gentiles, and that's the reference back in verse 16, upon them. So we know that them is Gentiles for sure, no dispute. And upon the Israel of God. So now the question, what is the difference between them, who are the Gentiles, and upon the Israel of God? And so the three options to understand and upon the Israel of God are as follows. One option is and means and. Two different groups. Them, the Gentiles, who have been forced to be circumcised. And second group, Israel of God, which would be ethnic Israel. The other option is blessing upon them or peace upon them, especially the Israel of God. So that still keeps the two-group distinction, but Paul says, look, I'm a Jew, and I want the Gentiles to have peace, but especially the Jewish, the Israel, Israelites as well to have peace. The third category, and this is where the covenantal believers go, they take the word and to mean even or equals Israel of God. Now, because... Of the 72 references, this is including. So now you have 71 to work through. And 69 of them for sure are ethnic Israel. The other two passages I mentioned, the, the Romans 9, 6 and Romans eleven twenty six, are also basically not disputed. By some are, but not really. It's clear that we're talking about ethnic Israel in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So really you have one passage in the Bible that could potentially be Israel of God as the church. And that is where the main distinction comes to. Is Galatians 6, 16, referring to them, the Gentiles, even Israel of God. That's the connection people begin to make in covenantal theology. The church is Israel. And from that, you now say, okay, all the promises that have been given to Israel in the Old Testament, land, king, kingship, the seed, you know, all the royal promises from Abraham to Jacob to Isaac to David and and so on, on and on and on, and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, because Israel rejected God, God rejects Israel, basically, and now he will fulfill all those promises in spiritual Israel, the church. Okay? So that's where it comes down to. That's the hermeneutical distinction that really dominates this whole discussion in a lot of ways. But if you say, well, look, if every other time Israel means ethnic Israel, why would I conclude that in this one passage it means spiritual Israel? And I would say it doesn't. Paul really wants the blessing to go on the Gentiles who are being forced to circumcise and upon ethnic Israel. Because we know how committed he was to ethnic Israel. In chapter 9 of Romans, he says, I could wish myself to be damned, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, if it meant their salvation. So he was committed to them 
because he wanted them to be saved. So of course he wanted them to experience peace. So that's the first thing. What is Israel? And if you believe that Israel ultimately turns into spiritual Israel, which ultimately means the church, then you begin to infuse some of that into the Old Testament. And people do that. And now you begin to see the church in the Old Testament. And now you begin to say, okay, we've got to change the terminology about the millennial kingdom and the fulfillment of all those promises because they're not going to be fulfilled. All those promises have been redirected now to the true Israel, the church, and all the, gen- the Jewish people were saved in the church. Okay, so that's one thing to keep in mind. It's a hermeneutical distinction. Okay, what is Israel? And the second element is what is the church? But the second big component to all of this is how do we understand the Bible? Is it a literal interpretation or a more figurative interpretation? Now, that is not to say that in the literal interpretive model, you cannot have any figurative interpretation. We talked about the, 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 the harlot of Babylon riding the beast. Does that literally mean that there is a woman who comes from Babylon who found some kind of an animal, the beast, and she's riding it in the tribulation period? Well, because of the other elements that we discussed, you know, the pure bride of Christ and the false religious system that is established by the beast and by the Antichrist, it seems to signify a false religious system, not a literal woman. And so now there is an allowance for figurative interpretation even within a literal model. However, the literal model, which is what I would say dispensationalists are trying to follow from Genesis to Revelation, they would say, if the Bible makes sense, seek no other sense. That is to say, it's a literal understanding. And so if God says, I will give you land, I will give you land. If God says, I will give you a Zion, will come, a Messiah will come from Zion, he's going to come from Zion. He will reign in Zion. Now, one of the reasons that I think the literal interpretation is very important for this specific conversation and the future of Israel and the millennial kingdom talk and what really helps me to find peace and to say, I think R.C. Paul was wrong in regards to his eschatological interpretations. And the other faithful men like Michael Horton, and there's many, of course, because of two passages in the Bible. And this is what I would encourage you to write down if you're thinking through these things carefully. The first passage is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35. And something similar is repeated in Psalm 89, verse 30 and 37. Okay, so... I'm going to count them as one passage, even though there are two, because I have another passage to mention. But Psalm 89, 30 through 37, and Jeremiah 31, 35 is similar language. So thus says the Lord. So remember, Jeremiah is written to pre-exilic Israel, Judah, prophesying the exile. The worst of the worst is about to happen to Israel, the people of God, so far because of their rebellion. Okay? So this is at the bottom of their experience. Thus says the Lord, verse 35 who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then the offspring of Israel will cease also from being a nation before me. Thus says the, forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above and can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. So if in the middle of a prophecy about the exile, God says, I will not cast them off. 
even when they're such sinners and they're so rebellious and they're so evil that I have to put them through the exile experience. I will not cut off the offspring of Israel forever. As surely as the fixed order of the moon and the stars and the sun happening every 24 hours, right? Psalm 89 repeats that message. So that's the first thing. God promises not to forget his people. So then we have no right to say, well, his people have been morphed, transformed into the church now. I just don't think we have the license to do that. You have to figure out a way to change the meaning, the literal meaning of that passage to mean something totally different. Because again, it's said to Israel, it's about Israel in the worst period of Israel's rebellion. The second passage is Acts chapter 1. So Acts chapter 1, of course, is post-resurrection, pre-ascension. And after Jesus has appeared to all the people, you know, 500 plus people, as we know from 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 6 of Acts 1, it says, When they came together, all the disciples in Jesus <clears throat> in Galilee, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own nature. So the answer Jesus gives when they ask him, hey, is the kingdom here? Look, you are resurrected. You clearly are victorious. Obviously, you have more power than Rome and the Jewish system and everybody. Are we entering the millennial kingdom? We know that the disciples thought about it a lot because on two different occasions, they asked, Hey, can we be like right next to you and rule with you, you know, on your right, right and on your left? And James and John asked that question, if you recall. So we understand that they were wanting to be in the kingdom. They were anticipating the kingdom. And so when they, in Luke chapter 24, if you remember, when the disciples are kind of depressed, remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? And in verse 21 of Luke 24, Jesus pretends he doesn't know what's going on as he's talking to them. And they tell him, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what just happened this weekend? Like, seriously, what's happening here? And so in verse 21, they say this. We were hoping that it is he who is going to redeem Israel. But now it's been three days since all of these things have happened. So now there's this anticipation that we really thought he was the Messiah, the political Messiah. Luke 1 if you see Zechariah's prayer, he talks about a political redeemer who will crush the enemies of Israel. So again, Luke writes Luke and Acts. And so he's tying the two books together by saying there is a political Messiah expectation by the people who are alive in Jesus' day or here on the earth. And we see that with Simeon. I have now, my eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel isn't simply spiritual peace and forgiveness of sin. That is a part of it, but it's greater than that. It's a political term. It's a redemptive term, both in Zechariah's prayer and in Simeon's statement. So now we have the holy of the holy people, right? Faithful Jews at the birth of Christ expecting this. And the disciples at the end of Luke 24 saying, we thought he was the one. And this doesn't say no. Sorry, we're done with the kingdom talk. We're now entering a spiritual millennial period 
which we're currently in, according to some of the covenantals brothers. And all that stuff has been redefined and there's no more kingdom. Jesus doesn't say that. What he says, it's not for you to know when. Instead, go and preach the gospel to the world. So I would say the answer Jesus gives is an insight into him not rejecting the future literal millennial kingdom that the people would have expected. And I don't think it's fair for us to say that Simeon and Zechariah and all of the disciples thought that we were expecting a spiritual kingdom, that they would have set aside all of the expectations from the Abrahamic covenant of an actual land and so on. Sorry, it was a long answer, but to kind of simplify it, I think the hermeneutic, literal versus more figurative, and the understanding of Israel versus the church, define the terminology, is what ultimately will lead you into one of two directions. And I think if you take the literal hermeneutic and consistently apply it, you will be, in my opinion, you will be closer to the pre-tribulational, premillennial position than in a preteristic direction or a millennial direction. Okay. No, I think that was helpful, even if, even if a bit longer than uh, than you might have wanted to do that in. Uh, that's a lot of territory to cover in a little bit of time. I I covered that territory in the, over an hour this past Sunday. So and I I didn't ask him that question ahead of time. So his answer is um, uninfluenced by how I what I taught. Hopefully, him. it was in agreement with what you said. Yes, yes, you were. Okay. Yeah. I had great confidence. Then we're really in trouble here. <laughs> One of us is. Exactly, for sure. Now we're just set on time. I want you to take um, uh, just, if you would, just take two minutes, kind of shift gears. Um, Doctor Skavich was is part of the translation committee for the Legacy Standard Bible. Can you can you do like a, a short promo for that, Mark? Sure. Yeah. Of course. Gladly. So yes, it was a project that was started uh, the week of COVID. You think about it. So God in His providence allowed us and me and five other men in the seminary university here to be on the team that we translated all of legacy. The, the philosophy of it wasn't just, let's take the New American Standard Bible and let's improve it. No, the philosophy was, yes, the contract with the publisher was to take the New American Standard Bible and revise it according to better, uh, you know, better translation. So what we did is we did have our Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic open, and we also had a dozen plus translations open constantly because we wanted to understand how the translated made, translators made those decisions. Nevertheless, we followed as consistently as possible the grammatical rules of the languages we were dealing with in the original language. So oftentimes when people talk about the legacy Bible, they talk about, hey, Yahweh is everywhere. All of a sudden, Yahweh appeared in the Bible and he wasn't there before and now Lord is turned into Yahweh. That's true, but that is not you know, the only change we made. The terminology is consistent. That's also true. As much as possible, if the word is the same from the Greek to the English, <clears throat> we try to make sure it's the same English word. The reason being, it helps you to, from the English language to conclude that if there's a different word, perhaps it's trying to give me a different uh, emphasis with that word. So let me give you one example because I think it, it's going to be a little bit clearer. So in John chapter 17... <clears throat> Jesus talks about protecting and praying for the protection of his disciples. And he says that none of them have perished except for the son of perdition. In verse 12, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Okay. Then you go to John chapter 19, 
And in chapter 19, in verse 28, and down to verse 30, you know verse 30, Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Remember that? Well, if you go back to verse 28, literally we should translate this, and the legacy did this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished, that's the Nazbi, but the word is finished. All things had been finished to fulfill scripture. But again, that's the word for finish. To finish scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. So in 28 through 30, he uses the same word, finish, finish, finish. Whereas in chapter 17, verse 12, he uses a different word, fulfill. And we kept the distinction so that if you're reading the Gospel of John, you see that, okay, why is this fulfill scripture versus finish scripture? What's the difference? Well, the pastor or you as an interpreter of scripture, you have to figure that out. But because he used different words, we changed John, 17, John 19, 28 from fulfill scripture to finish scripture. So you would understand in English, it's not the same word. And there's a different meaning. I'll tell you what the different meaning is in the words. In John 17, the word means content, qualitative. Whereas in John 19, the meaning is timing. Fulfillment, like this is the end. You're moving towards the end of something. The word there actually oftentimes means death. You finish your life. So when Jesus says it is finished, he's talking about his work of redemption is finished. His life is finished. But that's just one quick example where consistency of translation actually shines an insight into the original language. And then you carefully evaluate it. So we talked, we, we did whatever we could to change the, uh, the vocabulary to be consistent. We also modified quite a bit of the grammar to make sure that the participles are clearly communicated as participles and verbs as verbs and adjectives as adjectives because sometimes get things get muddled in order to be a little bit smoother in the English language. We also were committed to get rid of, getting rid of as many italics as possible because the italics are not in the original language. So if there's a way to say something faithfully to the original text without italics, we did that. And then one other big one, is we wanted to make sure that if the Bible uses terminology between testaments that is intended to pull the doctrine or concepts together in the reader's mind because of similar terminology, we use the same terminology. One example would be seed. Genesis 3, 15 talks about the seed of the woman. But then the rest of scripture, it goes to offspring, descendants, children, and seed kind of appears and reappears, but not always because it's not as smooth in the English language. What we did is whenever we saw the word seed, we said, this is going back to the promise, the Davidic promise, Abrahamic promise. There's going to be a seed who will ultimately fulfill Galatia, uh, Genesis 3.15. And ultimately that seed is Christ. So between the Old and the New Testament, if the idea goes back to the Messianic seed, we use the word seed. And so you'll miss offspring every so often and descendants in Galatians and other places because that's not the word. And they're talking about the Messianic seed. The goal behind that is to say, hey, there is an intertextual, intertestamental connection that the reader should make, a reminder of the Messianic prophecy coming back around every so often. So that would be some of the changes made for the Legacy Standard Bible. I think the best news as of this week is we're currently working with a publisher to attach the MacArthur Study Bible Notes to the Legacy Translation. It's not, the contract isn't finalized, but I got an email yesterday from two publishers that are working on this. I think they're almost at an agreement.
okay. that this can Good. be done. So you can pray for that because right now it's available in the New King James and the New American Standard and in the NIV. So this would be the fourth translation with the MacArthur notes to uh, with the Legacy Bible. And I think the reason that it matters to us is not because it's Pastor John and we love him and he's the the motivation behind this whole project from the beginning, but also because um, we do we are convinced that the Legacy Bible certainly is the most the closest translation to the original language, which ultimately we want to be. And this is this kind of criticism is coming from not outside our circles. People who are grammarians and language experts, they're saying this as they're evaluating the legacy Bible against original language. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I know it's um, uh, why you're, why you're in this a lot with at the seminary and the church, it still takes a lot to review uh, and to prepare for us, teaching us. So thank you very much for all of your effort. Um, getting it's up my early. pleasure. Um, so uh, I, we just appreciate that. And hopefully we can have you on site sometime. It will be much much better to have you uh, here in person. But uh, Well, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful, yeah. And I'm thankful. Thank you for the opportunity. I've certainly enjoyed this, and it's a good refresher for me to long for heaven after going through a message like this. And I hope you've been excited to long for heaven. That's the whole point. It's not about figuring out if Marcy's fall is perfectly right or perfectly wrong. It's to figure out that our hearts are longing for the place where we're going to be forever. Amen. And I hope that at least in some degree, the last hour and a half or so stirred you up in that direction. Yep. Amen. Well, again, thank you very much. And I just wonder if you would close us in prayer. Gladly. Lord God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this church community and to really reflect on truths that are complicated and sometimes disputed, but should excite us to be with you forever. Thank you for giving us revelation. and Thank you for giving us so many parts of Isaiah and um, Daniel that will help us understand exactly what the future holds for us. It's not everything. We understand that, but it's a preview. And it's a preview that excites us to be with Jesus. I do pray that you would bless this church, bless their faithful witness in their community, especially in a season where so much of our society is falling apart. The foundations are being destroyed. And what can the righteous do? Well, the righteous trust in you. So help this church to be faithful in their trust in you, but also in their witness in the community around them. Bring many new people to their church. Save them, sanctify them, and make them be a light in a dark place. Thank you for Mark and for his leadership and for his um, commitment to shepherding your people toward ultimately the goal of hearing that one wonderful sentence, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We all want to hear that, and we want to be faithful to you as many days as you give us. Amen.